If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation 17 is where we're at. We're going to do chapters 17 and 18 today. Uh, if you're new here, uh, we have been working through the book of Revelation. Uh, what we primarily try to do is work through books of the Bible. And we work verse by verse through them. Uh, one of the reasons we do that is so that we can't skip anything. Uh, a lot of times you can you know, just kind of go to the hot topics or go to the easy ones or go to what you might want to preach about. When you go verse by verse... You're kind of faced with everything, and we just kind of pray through the books and ask where God would lead us, where he would have us study. If you remember, in the beginning of 2018, we began the year in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is, is really all about God's sovereignty and the need to persevere in our faith, and we wanted to end, uh, not only revelate, or end the year, but then I guess begin the year in Revelation, uh, because we're still here, uh, and it also is all about the sovereignty of God and about how we, as his people, can persevere. Um, we're in chapter 17 and 18. When we do larger sections, we're not able to bring forth every part that we would like, and there is a lot in these passages, um, uh, but we will do our best to tackle as much as we can. The title today is The Allure of Idolatry. The main point that we will see is we must reject the lies of the whore as evidence of our faith in Christ. And so if that kind of shocks you, you will see why we use that terminology as we come through this text. Uh, what we understand is when we come into God's word is the Bible teaches us that God created all things and he made us in his image. And the fact that we are made in his image shows the special position that we have on this created earth for the purpose of being in relationship with God. And throughout the Bible, we see that as humans, those who bear the image of God, we will find lasting joy only in relationship with God. In fact, throughout God's word, it highlights the joy that we have in God as believers. Uh, Psalm 1611 says that we have joy because God's very presence contains joy. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God possesses, contains, and is the pleasures forevermore. Throughout the Psalms, we see man's response to who God is and what he does. Uh, Psalm 9 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The Psalms are filled with the psalmist just simply praising God because of what he has done. When Jesus is here on earth, he says his desire is to maximize the joy of those who follow him. Uh, John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So he wants us to have his joy, and not just in, in small portions, but us to be full in his joy. Some people uh, think the Christian life is bland and boring, and some of us think that you know, when we get to heaven, we'll just be on clouds and harps, and it sounds weird. Uh, John Piper has coined the term, Christian hedonism. Now, the secular hedonist says that we can find pleasure apart from God. Uh, Piper, using this word has, uh, in, in coining Christian hedonism, has said that as humans, made in the image of God, we are created to pursue pleasure. But he goes on to say that our greatest pleasure will only be found in relationship with God through Jesus. And this is why when we come into God's word, we see it's full of commands for us to rejoice in God. The gospel is designed to actually satisfy us and fill us with joy. I mean, one of the things we talk about, the gospel is grace, but the gospel is also mercy. Mercy is defined as God's action given to those in misery. And what we understand, according to the word, is that all of humanity, because of sin, we exist in a misery. We are not experiencing the fullness of life as God has created to be because of sin, and therefore he sends his son so that by mercy we would be saved, forgiven, adopted into his family, and experience that eternal joy as we experience his presence forevermore. So what does all this have to do 
with Revelation 17 and 18. Um, What we're going to see in this text is that apart from Christ, there is no lasting joy. And this text is meant to expose the lies of the world and show the destruction and pain and misery that it brings and for all those who reject Christ. And so there are complicated parts in this text. And in fact, I had to run through, run, run some of it by Ben this week going, hey, can I say all this? Do we have enough time to go through all this? We can get into the weeds very, very quickly. And so what I had to do a lot is hit delete We're not going to be able to get into all of the details. We're going to do as much as we can. Um, But there's a clear message. And the message is, is that we can have hope and joy in Christ alone. And so that's what I hope that we see. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 17 together, and we're not going to go all the way through 18. Uh, Now, one thing we do here is we stand at the reading of God's Word. So I want to invite you to stand as we read Revelation 17. We stand because God's word is inspired, is an inerrant, and it comes with his full authority for the purpose of equipping, for instructing, for rebuking, for correcting, for training. And so we do this as a means of honoring our God. So uh, join me in chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls and came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and and scarlet, Arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns. It carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom today. God, this is your word. It is given to us for understanding. It is given to us for the for the purpose of building up the church. God, may we be built up today in our faith. May we understand this word. May we understand that, God, there is a prostitute in this world that desires to lead all astray from worshiping God. She desires to seduce us. She desires to to have us fantasize with the idolatries that are here in this world. 
But God, may we see the truth of your word today, that all of those idols fall short. They cannot satisfy. They bring no true pleasure. God, I pray that in your word today, we would see that you alone are king and our Lord. And that only in relationship with you can we have joy. Can our souls, can our hearts be satisfied. God, we thank you for this message. Give us wisdom. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, may be seated. You might not choose this text tonight if you're doing family devotions. But you might. If you're me and you're kind of weird and you like weird things with your kids. Uh, last week, we read about the seven bowls of God's wrath. That's chapter 16. The sixth and seventh bowl showed the destruction of Babylon. In chapter 16, verse 19, we read, Babylon will drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. That's what we saw. That's what, what's happening in the sixth bowl. Our text today is meant to unpack that. In fact, all the way back in chapter 14, we see that God will pour forth his wrath. Babylon uh, will experience it. The beast will be consumed by it. And now in chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 is all the unpacking upon the judgment of God on the beast and the Babylon and, and on Satan himself. Uh, and we know that this section that we're in is unpacking the bowls because in verse 1 we come across in chapter 17, come, er, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And it's one of the angels who had the seven bowls is now saying, okay, now let's go further into what we just talked about in the sixth bowl. And so uh, we're going to make our way through. Now, chapter 17 is divided into two sections. Uh, verses 1 through 6 is going to show us a picture of Babylon as she stands now. Chapter verses 7 through the end is going to give us a picture of the beast. And primarily, it's going to show how the beast will be used to bring about the judgment upon Babylon. So that's, that's why we have this extended portion about the beast and if you are new here we can't unpack all the things that we've been working through uh, to get to this point uh, I encourage you we do have all of our sermons up online if you'd like to go back and look at, at other ones to give you a little more context we'll do the best we can as we make our way through uh, what we're going to see first is uh, in verses one through six Babylon is a whore seeking to intoxicate the world with her lies um, verses 1 through 6, this is what we see. Now, to remind you who Babylon is, we'll start with who the church is. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is made up of people who worship God. Throughout Revelation, we see these counterfeits. We see the counterfeit Christ. We see the counterfeit Mark. We see the counterfeit uh, Trinity. We see the counterfeit bride, which is what Babylon is. She's made up of people who seek pleasure in anything other than Jesus. The church finds pleasure in Christ and worships that. Babylon worships anything else. One commentator said, any institution or facet of culture that is characterized by pride, economic abundance, persecution, and idolatry is a part of Babylon. It is the siren call of this world tempting us to be intoxicated with power, with prestige, with possessions, with pleasures here on earth. The first time we see the allure of Babylon is actually all the way back in Genesis, in the beginning of the book, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he basically says, God's holding out on you. You can be God right now if you take of this fruit. You don't need God. Look to yourself. You can have more than what he's offering. You can have more joy, more pleasure, more purpose, more power. If you just simply eat of the fruit. And throughout the Bible, we have seen ever since the first sin is that, uh, off, is that humanity is plagued with being drawn after idols. Even as God begins to create a people in the Old Testament through Abraham, which we see the people of Israel, and as they are constituted as a people, and uh, 
what we see is that they struggle with staying true to God. They're continually tempted by their neighbors and even within Israel uh, to worship false gods. They're tempted by the love of money to oppress and rob the poor. In fact, when we come to chapters 2 and 3, which in Revelation give us a, uh, a description of seven churches, five of the seven churches have already begun to compromise their faith as they've listened to the temptations of Babylon. So this is the struggle that we're all in. So we all have Babylon all around us, calling us, alluring us, seeking to have us find a pleasure in something other than God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, we begin to see the striking appearance of this harlot. She's adorned with purple and scarlet and, and gold. She has jewels and pearls. Now, when we get to chapter 21, we're going to have this amazing picture of the bride. And the bride is adorned with all these jewels. And she's beautiful. And so what we have here is an imposter. One who looks beautiful, but she is not the true bride. Rather, she's a picture of all that the world has to offer, and it looks good in many ways. In her hand is a cup of abominations. This is the lies that she tempts people with. In verse 5, we say, we say there's a name on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. She's the mother of all prostitutes. She's the birthplace of all sexual immorality, of sex trafficking, pornography, child pornography. This is where um, the wickedness of this world stems from, is fueled by, by this harlot, Babylon. And the reason it says it's a mystery is because you only see her true nature by faith in Christ. Only those who have had their eyes opened by the truth of the gospel see that all of her promises are actually lies. And let us not miss that she's referred to as a whore. We must understand how she's referred to, and we must not think of her gently. Now, we have said many times, and I don't want to go into detail, that we are not against the things of this world as a church, or God's word is not. We are not against cars and houses and all of that kind of stuff. We are against them becoming the idols of our hearts, though, because that is what God is against. We're against those things that want to take primary focus in our life that we would begin to pursue them and find meaning and purpose in them other than Christ. So as we go through here, I just don't want you to kind of begin thinking, oh, it's one of those churches that are against everything. We're not. I preach from an iPad. You know, that we, we like technology. We, we like stuff. But we're against that stuff becoming ruling things that govern us and direct us. That's what Babylon wants. She wants to turn all the gifts of God, all the pleasures that he offers us, and he wants to turn them into the very gods themselves that would lure us away from the one true God. Um, and so therefore, we must understand and see Babylon for what she is. She's a whore. And she's wanting to, to devour us, pursue us, deceive us, tempt us all into our uh, destruction. And what we see here in verse 5 is the hatred Babylon has for God. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. The world does not want peace with God. It's not seeking cohabitation. You can have these continents. We'll have these continents. It's not looking for that. The world desires the death of the true bride, the church. Now at the end of verse 6, we see that John marvels at the harlot, and then the angel in verse 7 says, why do you marvel? <laughs> I think that's a good question. I don't think he's marveling as in awe, because it says she's drunk with the blood of the saints. So it seems weird for him to be mesmerized in, in an awe, in a worshiping type way. Now many commentators will say that, and it's up for discussion. But the fact that it says she's drunk with the blood of martyrs, I think he's horrified by it. He's in awe of it. He's marveling at it and also wondering, how are we seeing the judgment of her? You said we're going to see the judgment. What I see is a pretty powerful, intoxicating picture of a woman who is slaying the saints. 
And so now, in verses 7 through 18, we're going to look at this picture of the beast. Now, um, it says it's a mystery of Babylon and the beast. Now, the mystery really comes at the end, uh, because the primary part of this text is all about the beast. Now, we've seen the beast in chapter 11. We saw the beast in chapter 13, and we see the beast now here again, and and we'll, we'll see him again in 19. And think of all these chapters as different camera angles on the beast. They all share similar information, but they also add little different information also, just as the camera angles is gathering a little larger perspective from, from where it is designated at. Now, what we're going to see is the main point of verses 7 through 18. Now, there's a lot of details here, and it's actually kind of fun to get into them and try to wrestle with them all. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do all that, but The main point that we can't miss is that this text is going to show us how God brings judgment on Babylon. That's the main thing. So we might differ on some of the details as we go through. The main thing, this text shows us how Babylon, this harlot that's seeking to intoxicate the world, will be judged. So I think I have... Uh, about four things that we're going to look at under the powers of the world are mere pawns in the hands of God. That's kind of the heading of this section. And four things that we're going to see about this beast. Number one, the beast has an alliance with Babylon. In verse three, the woman sits on the beast. Now, it looks as almost she maybe has sovereignty over the beast, or maybe it's that the beast is supporting uh, the woman and and helping her in in all that she does in her seductive nature. But what we see is they work together. There is an alliance that through the seductive nature of Babylon and the power of the state and the church, that they're seeking to attack the church. Now, we said this in chapter 13, and we'll say it again, the beast represents the secular state powers of this world. Now, the imagery of the beast, which is why we start in Daniel, comes from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 begins with four beasts, which clearly represent secular state powers, which then um, Daniel uses in chapter 13 and here as a means of helping us understand who this beast is. It, it is secular state powers that seek to oppress the church and in verses 9 through 13 this is confirmed by it has seven heads and ten horns and we're told that the heads represent kings and we're told it represents mountains so kings of course represent powers mountains might be an allusion to rome because it sat on seven hills or the word mountain means strength often in apocalyptic literature So it could mean either way, but the clear intent is that this beast with its seven heads representing kings, powers, and mountains, which is either Rome, which is a secular state power, or just simply a reference to uh, strength in itself, is representing these powers that seek to oppress the church. Verse 12, we see that its ten horns represent ten kings, and in verse 13, these ten kings, which the number ten in apocalypse, just real quick, Revelation's apocalyptic literature, everything is almost symbolic as we go through here. The number one way we start with interpretation in Revelation is looking for the symbolic meaning. And in apocalyptic literature, numbers are always, always symbolic. So four often means uh, the, the whole earth, the four winds of the earth. Um, Uh, Seven is going to mean perfect and complete. The word ten can also have a type of completion and power. So you have ten kings that will come into power. So all the world's powers will be given to the beast. We're not looking for ten kingdoms. It's understanding these are the kings of the world. These are the nations. They're going to give all their power to the beast. Uh, Another number, number 12, is often symbolic of the people of God, which is why you have... Uh, later we'll have uh, or earlier we had the 144,000 12 times 12 the perfect number of God's people being talked about so I say all that as a little bit of background when we start talking numbers we're not making up definitions for them this would be what would be commonly understood in apocalyptic type literature 
Uh, so what we see is that these ten kings, representing all the powers of the world, will give all of their power to the beast. And in verses 9 through 13, we see that one day uh, they give their powers to the beast. And in verse 14, we see what, they, what the beast will do with this power. If you look at verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb. That's the point. Is that all of these powers want to make war on the Lamb, which is the unpacking of the sixth bowl, where all these nations are coming to gather against God. And the way the beast wars against Jesus is by attacking the bride. Remember when Paul is on the Damascus Road, he's going to go persecute Christians. Jesus comes and says, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Well, I mean, technically, Paul's not throwing anything at Jesus, right? But you attack his bride, and you attack him. And so, by attacking the bride, the church is the means in which the world will attack God. That happened in the garden. How is Satan going to attack the very glory of God? He doesn't have a chance against God, but he will attack that which is made to image God. We see that in the beginning. We see it all the way throughout Scripture. Is is trying to lure image bearers away from worshiping God. And so what we understand is that one day the powers of the world will do everything they can to eradicate the church. And we see this, verse 8. It says that the beast will rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. But before it goes to destruction, in chapter 11, where we're also given this picture of the beast, it says in chapter 11, verse 7, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, on war on the church, and conquer them and kill them. So as this beast comes out of this bottomless pit, this symbolic language here, coming to rise against God, its first action will be to turn on, um, or it, it, will, it will attack the church. And in 13, chapter, chapter 13, verse 7, we read, The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Throughout Revelation, what we've seen is that it appears that there's going to be a time in history before the full return of Christ that it's going to look as though the church has been eradicated. The powers of this world will combine in great force as a persecution against the church. Notice in verse 8, we read, The beast was and is not and is to come. There's a, there's a coming of the beast, uh, when we read about, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, this is verse 10, the other has not yet come, when he does, he'll remain a little while, so this is all talking about the, the beast coming, there's a future coming here, and all the power that the beast has is for the purpose of attacking the church, it wants to prevent the spread of the gospel, it wants to keep people from believing the gospel, and above all, it wants to destroy the church. And this is why Revelation is written. This is why it is written. It's, ri it's written to encourage you and I. It's written to help us understand, hey, wait a minute. Though this world may attack us, we can stand firm. Because when we look at verse 14, we see what happens when the beast rises against Jesus. It says, they'll make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer him. That's all it needs to say. And the Lamb will conquer them. War is over. And when we get to chapter 19, where all the nations rise, it says Jesus comes, and with a sword in his mouth, he strikes them down. War is over. Why? Why is it that Jesus can conquer him so easily? Because he's the supreme king. Look at what it says. Verse 14. And the Lamb will conquer them. Why? For. For he is Lord of Lords. This is an explanation for why he conquers the beast. Because he's king. Because he's the Lord. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And that's a beautiful description of the church that I really would love to go to, but we're not at all. Um, but what we see is that the next point, the beast is destined for destruction. It will rise. It will do all of its can, all that it can in its power, but it will be defeated. So I just want to encourage you. Um, we don't need to fear. When we watch CNN, Fox News, pick your favorite three-letter uh, news network, 
We don't need to have fear in ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean we're watching and just going, wow, this is great. Sometimes we do. Uh, but, but when we see the chaos in this world, when we see war, when we see misery, when we see pain, we can cry with them. We can mourn with them. But yet we do not need to wonder if our God is in control. We do not need to wonder if he's been thrown off his throne. We do not need to wonder, is, is God still ruling Because what verse 14 says, yes, yes he is, and there's a day coming when he will come and crush the beast and all of his power. So how does this explain the judgment of Babylon? This whole section brings us to the next point. The beast will turn on Babylon. We see a day is coming when the beast will no longer seductively seduce people, but it will rely on its raw, bloodthirsty draconian power to oppress to destroy and to kill look at verse 16 10 kings and the beast will turn on babylon and destroy her satan will become divided against himself now scripture shows us that sin and evil are ultimately destructive and they're very self-destructive and satan himself is not immune to the powers of sin If it is self-destructive to us who practice sin, it will also be self-destructive to Satan himself. Now, why does Satan destroy Babylon? Look at verse 17. It tells us why his house is divided. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Now, whose hearts? The beast and the ten kings. All the powers of the world. By being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until what? Until the words of God are fulfilled. Who's ruling here in this passage? God is. So when you're in the first century and you're in Rome and there's great persecution and Christians are being killed for their faith and you're wondering, man, can we stand? And all of a sudden you have this passage that says, do not worry. Our God is in control, and one day he will turn Satan's house against himself. He will become divided, and and he will fall. Because our God is in control. I encourage you, let let 17, verse 17, bring you much comfort. In fact, all of Revelation is meant for your comfort. And I get it's strange, but do not stay away from the book of Revelation. Do not stay. Now, don't go into all the the fantasy of it, too, because that can derail us from the meaning. But do not stay away from this book, which is meant to strengthen, which is meant to comfort, which is meant to come alongside the church so that we might stand firm. What we see in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That is Satan. He is simply water in God's hand. And when God chooses, he will move his hand. Satan will turn against himself and Babylon will be destroyed. And when that happens, that's how we go to chapter 18. So that's what chapter 18 is now about. It is the unpacking of the judgment on Babylon, which God will use to bring about through the beast. Does that make sense? Are are we tracking? Description of the harlot, verses 1 through 6, 7 through 18. There's this beast. He's powerful. He's got all these kings. And that is how God will bring judgment on 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 Babylon, which is all of chapter 18. And in chapter 18, we see Babylon will be exposed as a fraud and destroyed. And this set in chapter 18 is primarily broken up into two sections. If you look in verse 1, there is an angel that appears. And if you look in verse 21, there is an angel that appears. So there's these two appearings of angels might be the same angel, might be a different angel. Um, those are really the, the primary uh, divisions in chapter 18. First angel declares the fall of Babylon and the effect that it has in this world. We see that in verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And many of you have probably seen the movie Pretty Woman, 1990. You all know that. Don't shake your head that you don't know. I'm in my 30s still, and I'm holding on to that. I consider myself very young. Never moving over. Julia Roberts, Richard Gere. Julia Roberts is a prostitute who meets Richard Gere. It's like, if you haven't seen it too bad, I'll ruin it. It's a Cinderella story. You should have seen it. You had like 30 years. Um, 
in the end, they fall in love. It's Richard, they kind of each rescue each other, but he rescues her from her life of prostitution. Isn't that, it's just a sweet story, right? Um, you know what, though? That's fantasy. Because in real life, the prostitute leads to misery, pain, death, and destruction. In the real life, and according to God's word, the prostitute does not end up happily ever after. And what we see is that the whore of Babylon will be crushed for her sins. Verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon, for she is great. She's becoming a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean word, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. This actually fulfills what Jeremiah spoke in, in chapter 51, verse 37 of Jeremiah. He says, Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant." So when we read about the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament, and it's talking about actually literal Babylon, the, the, the country back then, it's actually all talking about a much greater power that will come in the future also. And in 8 verse 5, we see that her sins are piled all the way up to the heavens, and now God will pay her back. Verse 6, it says, pay her back as she is herself as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her cup in the cup that she has mixed. God has seen all the idolatry of this world. He has not missed it. We wonder at times. But what we see, he's not missed it. He's allowed it for time to pile up before him. And now, at some point, judgment will come. And what we see is that, ju- is that God's judgment It reveals the lies of Babylon. It will show her to be a fraud. God's judgments will show that all of her promises, all of her pleasures, and all of her powers are in reality false. Look at verse 7. It says, she's glorified herself. She said she's a queen. She said she's not a widow. She said that she will never see mourning. So the lies that she offers are power, are beauty, are acceptance, are happiness. This is what she offers. She says, you come to me. You'll be a queen or a king, depending on how you want. You'll never see mourning. You won't be a widow. Everyone will love you. You'll have a line of people that want to be with you. The cup that she offers to this world, though, is laced with poison. Her message is everywhere in this world. And we see it, whether it's commercials. Every commercial shows how their product will exponentially increase the joy and satisfaction of our life. Alcohol commercials seem to, to promise us pleasure and popularity. In fact, we were joking around about that earlier, how when you read, when you watch these beer commercials, especially the really bad beer commercials, like Budweiser and Miller and stuff like that, like they seem to promise the best life. Not if you're drinking that beer. Like that's just not happening iPhone commercials show how they make us complete. Clothing commercials show you can be whatever you want if you simply dress another way. Magazines show you can look like this or with a few exercises you can have the body that you want. Uh, Gender change is now a huge thing that maybe you'll have your real purpose, your real satisfaction, your real joy if you simply become true to who you really are. Relationships can become an idol. Spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, kids. Everywhere you look, the horror of Babylon is, is present. In fact, Steph and I, we're, we have a van, and it's, it's, it's reaching 200,000 miles, so we've been looking at, all right, we need, we need to change, you know. Um, so we start looking at used vehicles, and of course, you go, to the, you go to the dealer, you look at used vehicles, you should look at new vehicles, and so we start looking at new vehicles, and in my head, I was going, wow, we, we probably should have a new vehicle. Like, we need this. Like, we, we need this, and these features, and these features, in fact, kind of deserve it, don't we? I mean, but, but it just starts working in our hearts. Where all of a sudden, you just start looking at stuff, and you're going, wow. And the more you look at it, the more you go, I, I, how could I settle for a, a 2018 now? I mean, it's the same thing, but this one says 19. You know, or, like, but that's where my heart goes. Now, you might be different, but the more I, I look at something, and the more I become fixated on something, the more I have to have the best of that something. And I, that's just how I, I work. Um, I was at Cutter's Point the other day. I was working on this sermon. Um, a man sits next to me. And I told, and he looks over me. He says, you studying? Yep, I'm studying. So then I 
I said, I'm, I'm working and getting a sermon ready for a church. And so then I said, well, you a part of a church? No, I don't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> but he said it so, like, I'm usually pretty good at, like, responding. I had nothing. Like, I just went, all right. <laughs> like, we don't have to talk, but the silence is quickly broken because apparently he wants to talk. So he goes, look, I read the whole Old Testament, New Testament. I did it several times, like seven years ago. And uh, they're, they're like 95% false. So I said, really? So now I got my in. Uh, so we start talking about it. We talk for 20 or 30 minutes about the Bible throughout the entire conversation. It does not matter what I say. God is dumb. It is stupid. You shouldn't believe it. We don't need God. Everything he said belittled God. And then he said, you know what, religion is just a crux for the weak, which is really just a weak argument from him, because that was really used like 300 years ago, which I pointed out to him. Um, <laughs> we were going to be good friends. Uh, so we, we pointed that out. Uh, you should have been there. He first called himself an agnostic. It finally came down to me. I just said, why don't you just call yourself an atheist? You're being a coward calling yourself an agnostic. I told that to him. I said, everything you have said is completely and absolutely against God. You're not. You're not in between. You don't care about, and he said, you know what? You're right. I don't care about God. So then he says, you know what? I, all I need is my own. He literally said, all I need is my own intellect. I'm smart enough. Once you, once you see people get educated, they don't need God. And so then I said, well, actually, you know, this is, <laughs> we're not going to be friends. So we started looking at it, and we started talking about other nations and other, other places in the world, and he just said, well, that's because they're all ill-educated. You have to come to the western side of the world. So I knew at this point it was not going anywhere, so I, I, we, we ended our conversation. Um, but what I realized, and I was trying to be as kind as I could. I really was. Really, he was pushing every button. I was like, hey, how do I even respond? How do I be loving? How do I be kind? What I realized is that he was a poster child for Babylon. He was. He's drinking the cup of Babylon. Intellect and reason has become his God. He needs nothing else. He has reasoned himself away. He has made himself God. He has ruled God out by his own reasoning. This is what the world wants to do. It simply wants to lure us away from God. It will use anything. It will use money, pleasures, possessions, relationships, job, success, intellect, gender transformation. It will use anything it can to draw you away, to show you know what? Your life's not complete. God can't satisfy you. If you really want to be happy, you need X, Y, or Z. And you know what? At times, her lies seem plausible, don't they? At times, her lies seem plausible. And so I, I want to just bring to you and ask you, what, what lies are you currently believing? Just think about that. Is there anything that you're trusting in more than Jesus? Now, don't give the quick Christian answer. No. Like, think it through. What determines how you live? Is it really the gospel? Are you positioning yourself more and more on how to share the gospel and how to love people and how to meet needs? Or... Is it maybe your job, peer pressure, need for respect? Like, is it other things that are dictating your obedience? Are you having more obedience to Christ or more obedience to something else? We're not immune to the lies. We're not immune to her seductive nature. But the Spirit is given to us that as we are convicted and as we see, wow, I begin to look at this and this, and I think that I'm getting drawn in, we're called to repent. And so I just want to encourage you. One of the ways we know that we're Christians, one of the ways we know that we believe in the gospel is through repentance. Repentance is nothing bad. It is the act of obedient children calling to their father and saying, look, I need forgiveness because I've, I've sinned. And the joy that we have is that when we repent to our father and ask forgiveness, he will always, always forgive. Um, You could, you, there's a lot more we could say. Verse 8, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord our God who has judged her. And then really, in verses 9 through 19, we see all these different people kind of described in merchant, in, in merchant type uh, language, like shipmasters and merchants and sailors. 
And it all describes the people of the world and how they were buying into all that Babylon had. All of her pleasures and that they were wanting it. So it's a symbolic way of representing all these people on earth saying how they mourn. And when they mourn for her, they actually, they don't love Babylon. No one's sad that Babylon's gone. You know what they're sad over? The stuff she had to offer. Like no one's rescuing the harlot. Make sure you see that. No one's going, no, don't destroy her. They're looking at, what about my gold? What about my jewels? What about all these things and these pleasures and these riches that I had? That's why they're mourning, which brings us to the second angel in verse 21. And the second angel symbolically shows the total decimation of Babylon. If you see there, verse 21, a mighty angel takes up a stone like a great millstone and throws it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets, trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, and all who have been slain on earth. The point is, no music, no arts, no crafts, no labor, no marriage, no relationships, no light, no joy, no happiness. That's what awaits all who reject Christ. So Babylon offers all that says, you can have it. It's yours, it's yours, it's yours. But what we see is that ultimately, all of them will fail and they will all perish what Babylon offers is like what the, what the witch did. I think it's a witch. In Snow White, is it a witch? It's a witch, right? I didn't go back and like watch the movie. Uh, but she offers Snow White the apple. It looks beautiful on the outside, but it's laced with poison. That's what all the promises of Babylon are. And again, remember, it's not that we're against stuff. It's not that we're against things. But Babylon wants those things to become the ruling things in our life. And don't always get stuck on possessions, like it has to be your car, your house. It can be your respect, it can be your body, it can be relationships around you. In Matthew 18, 6, we see Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I didn't ever see that pointing to Babylon until this week, when Jesus is literally saying, anyone who deceives my people... They will be drowned. And that is exactly the picture that God wants us to see of Babylon the harlot and all of her seductive powers. She's tried to seduce everyone and she's seduced many. But there's a day coming where God will drown her in her sorrows and pain and misery and never again will there be light, never again will there be joy, never again will there be music in her. And so really there, there's a couple responses that this text has us take and we're gonna go through them quickly. The response of the true bride. Number one, we faithfully pursue an obedient life to Jesus. Look at verse four. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part of her sins. This is a call for holiness. Here God is talking to these seven churches and really to all churches. And he's calling us to live faithfully to him. Imagine a person who's deathly ill. The doctor tells him there's a cure, but it's very expensive. And without it, he has no hope. He will have to sell his cars and his house to afford it. And so the doctor says, because it's expensive, you might not want it. The guy says, but what good is my house? What good is my cars? What good is my possessions if I die? They mean nothing compared to me to this medicine. This medicine is the most important thing that I could possibly have. That's what the gospel does for us. That came from an illustration that Tim Keller gave. It opens our eyes. The gospel opens our eyes to see that, look, only Jesus, not only now, but eternally satisfies our hearts and brings us immeasurable joy. Our lives are to be spent growing in this joy through acts of mercy, through words that we're to proclaim the goodness of Christ. Hear this, if we're to resist the charms of Babylon, if we're to stand firm in our faith, it's only because we hold on to a much greater joy. The Christianity is not a bland thing. Jesus isn't offering us, hey, this will just get you through life. No, he offers us the greatest thing. And he's saying, look, the way you resist all the pleasures is by a much greater pleasure, Jesus Christ. Last point, 
we rejoice for our king has avenged the blood of the saints. We see that in verse 20. Uh, we're not going to go into all that, but, but the joy we have is not just in the future. The joy we have is now. Because we know that now, because of our faith in Christ, we've been forgiven and declared righteous by God. We have joy because now we know that we've been adopted into God's eternal family. We have joy now because we know that we're co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us by faith in him. We have joy because we know that all the treasures of God are ours in Christ. We have joy now because we know that we are all being made like Jesus right now. We have joy now because we know that when he returns, we'll be glorified and made perfectly like him. We have joy now because we know that one day in the future, we will dwell in a new heavens and new earth, and never again will we experience pain, disease, suffering, guilt, shame, hurt, rejection, persecution, suffering, or death. These are the truths of God's word that he gives us now. So we have great joy now in our lives as we anticipate even the greater joy of being in his presence for all of eternity. So this passage, chapter 17 and 18, shows us Babylon will fall. Only those who trust in Christ will stand forever. So with that, I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the men come forward, and we will take of our communion today. Our Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. There's a lot here in this word, and I know we went through fast, Lord, so I pray, give us understanding. God, equip us today because of your word. God, may we be strengthened in our faith, and Lord, I pray that whatever idols we might begin to be playing with, toying with, that might begin to seduce us. Lord, I pray that you would reveal them to us this morning, that we'd repent of them. And Lord, I pray that each and everyone here would have that personal relationship with you and experience the joy and the pleasure that you offer us. And that we would know that the joy you offer us is not partial. It's not little and it will not pass, but it is full and it only grows as we grow in our knowledge of you so for all of eternity we will grow in our knowledge and our joy of you because you are infinite may we be captivated by that may we experience that today may our hearts be made well may we know that in you we are complete and that you alone satisfy us and that all the things of this world things can be good but they will never take the place of you God, help us to be a people who clings to you, who loves you and proclaims you in the joy that you offer. In your name, Jesus, amen.